God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Lincoln Berean Church. Here is Pastor Brian Clark. So I invite you to turn with us to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in chapter 9. So chapter 7 was a long discourse, a conversation with uh, the Jews, uh, mostly the religious leaders. Jesus is trying to explain to them that he has come from the Father, sent from the Father, to tell them the truth and to die on the cross to be their Savior. But they're unwilling to listen. Jesus says it's because they've believed the lie of the devil. And the devil lies and says religion and self-righteousness can make you acceptable to God. So that comes out of chapter 8 into chapter 9. We pick it up in verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So in that culture, if you were blind, which actually was relatively common, you had no real way to survive but to beg. And so the man's begging. Jesus and his disciples come across him. I would say the disciples' question is more curiosity than compassion. But they want to know who sinned that he's blind, that he was born blind. And it's interesting, they say, was it him or his parents? Raises an interesting question. How could he sin before he was born? But the rabbis taught that, for example, if his mother was pregnant and went to a pagan temple, he too was guilty of idolatry, and that was his sin. While that seems odd to us, it is odd, but there's a deeper issue going on, and that is that the Jews believed if you were blind, if you were sick, if you were deformed in some way, it was God's punishment. You had done something, and God was punishing you. Uh, Which raised an interesting question. Did the rest of them think they were sinless? that they were healthy and not blind. But it's just a messed up theology, but it's a theology I bump into all the time today. I have people sit in my office and maybe they have some disease they're fighting or things are going badly in their life. And they ask the question, is God mad at me? Is God punishing me? I mean, why is he doing this to me? And it's just a bad theology that thinks if I'm sick, if I have cancer, if I get a virus, that God's mad at me and he's punishing me. The truth is we live in a fallen world and there's sin and there's heartache and there's disease and there's brokenness. It's just part of living in this world. So Jesus responds, uh, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of God who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of of the world. So Jesus immediately says, that's bad theology, it's neither. And then what he essentially says is, but this is a moment where he can demonstrate his power in order that people would see that he is God in the flesh come to be the savior of the world. Now it is possible halfway first through verse three, that there could be a period at the end of parents and then a new sentence starts up. So it was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, period, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me. There's some scholars that uh, think it reads that way, the grammar allows it, but essentially Jesus is saying that time is running out. While I'm in the world, there's light in the world, 
but there isn't much time left and it's going to be darkness. So if people are going to accept and believe, then there aren't many of these moments remaining, which gets us then to verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is kind of an odd miracle. Uh, Why does Jesus spit on the ground in the clay and mix up some clay, stick it in his eyes and send him all the way to the pool, which actually was quite a distance. And for a blind man would have been a relatively difficult journey. Uh, Why didn't he just say something? Why didn't he just touch them? He, He did that on many other occasions. But this particular miracle is filled with symbolism. So we're just coming off the Feast of Tabernacles, probably days or maybe a few weeks after that. And there was a lot of symbolism in that feast that we talked about. So when Jesus spits in the clay and mixes it up, part of what he's identifying is what John says in the opening of his gospel. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, he identifies Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He was God. He was with God. That Jesus is the creator of the universe. He said all things that exist were made by him, which means then that Jesus was the God of Genesis 2 that essentially rolled up his sleeves and created Adam from the dust. And the language is he formed him into a man, which is pottery terminology. So the first creation was the potter taking clay and making a man. So just like Jesus was the I am out of the burning bush to Moses. Jesus uh, was the finger that wrote the Ten Commandments to Moses. Jesus was the creator God of Genesis 2. So the clay is symbolism that Jesus has come to usher in a new creation, to bring new life, to bring redemption, to make all things new. So every time Jesus does a healing, it's actually a glimpse of what one day will be the fulfillment of the promise that he will make all things new, that, that he will bring ultimate redemption and healing. So you get just little glimpses of it. So it is new creation. It's recreation. It's born again. It's the beginning of a new story. So the creator is recreating. And so when you're talking about somebody who's been blind since birth, you're talking about somebody whose eyes never worked. They've always been defective. They don't just need to be fixed. They need to be recreated. So the, the clay is symbolic of that. So then he goes what would have been a fair distance through the streets. Perhaps some of that was to test his obedience. Perhaps some of that was uh, maybe to get people to notice that this miracle was going on. It certainly would have caught people's attention. But mostly he went to the Pool of Siloam. And John makes sure we understand that the Hebrew Siloam means scent. So he's going to wash in the same water that was used for the procession for the Feast of the Tabernacles when they did the water procession and Jesus identified himself as the water of life. So all the symbolism here is the one who has come to issue new life, new creation, sends him to the pool. So the pool is named Sent. And this is what Jesus has been saying to them over and over again. I am sent from the Father. So where does he go? He goes to the pool called Sent. 
and he washes in the water that Jesus has identified. I am the water of life. His eyes are open and he sees, which is the picture of light. And Jesus has just identified himself as the light of the world. Those who come to me will receive the light of life. So it's all this symbolism in this moment. I am the sent one who is the water, who is the light, and he's bringing recreation. The man who is blind now can see. So there's a lot of imagery in this miracle. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So he goes back and friends and neighbors are trying to figure out if this is the same guy. Some think he is, some think he's not. So you have this debate going back and forth. And the blind man is saying, I am the one. Now the I am is actually the exact same Greek construction as the end of chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus said, Uh, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So part of this little part of the story is like a image of the bigger story going on. You have two groups of people. They're debating whether this is the one or not. And he's saying, I am the one. And that's kind of a picture of the bigger story that's happening here. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? This will be the question that will be repeated again and again through the story. How did this happen? He answered them, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So he tells them how this happened. But the people are confused, and when you're confused, you go find the local Pharisee at the synagogue and ask him what's going on. So that's what they do. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. We have to chuckle when we read that because we know what's coming. We've seen this before, and it's kind of a, oh boy, this is not going to go well. Jesus broke the rules again. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again, how? Here's our question, how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed And I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So the Pharisees are trying to figure out who is Jesus. There's a group of them that conclude he's just a sinner. He broke the rules. He broke the Sabbath. And of course, it's their version of the Sabbath. And they identify two things, the clay, making the clay, and the healing itself. Now, we've seen this before, but if there was a man who had been born blind and suddenly in a moment could see, Wouldn't you stop and ask yourself the question, who is this man that he makes the blind to see? But they are so entrenched in their religion, all they can think about is he must be a sinner. He broke the rules. But there's another part of the Pharisees 
that are wrestling with the question, if he's a sinner, how could he do this? You remember Nicodemus was a Pharisee. It's possible he was in this group and maybe even leading this conversation. If he's such a sinner, how is it that he could do this miracle? So they're disputing among themselves. And I think it's really interesting that just a few hours earlier, this was a blind beggar that nobody cared about. Now the religious experts are asking him his theological opinion. And it is interesting that they say in verse 18, since he opened your eyes, there's no debating that. And since that happened, who do you think he is? And he identifies him as a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, He was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Pharisees can't deny the fact that the blind man can see. So plan B is, I'm not sure that this guy was ever blind. You know, it's like a trick or something. And so let's go find his parents. And there's three questions. One is, is this your son? Number two, was he blind from birth? And number three, how does he see? So they answer yes to question number one. Yes, this is our son. Yes, he was blind from birth. Question number three, I don't know. I don't know. You're going to have to ask him. Now, their response is really curious. You'd think if parents had a son who had been blind from birth and all his life he had been a beggar, and now suddenly in a moment he could see it would be party time. It would be time to celebrate. This was an amazing moment. But instead, these parents basically distance themselves from their own son and maybe more than that, kind of throw him under the bus. They don't want anything to do with this. They're like, I don't know. He's old enough to answer your questions. Ask him. Which raises the question, what's going on? And John tells us it's because they were afraid. They were afraid of the religious leaders. The religious leaders had decided if anyone identified with the Christ, they were to be put out of the synagogue. Now we need to understand for them, that would have meant there was no chance of experiencing favor with God. This is the challenge. The religious leaders position themselves in a place where in order to get to God, you had to go through them. So if you get them angry, if you disagree with them, if they put you out of the synagogue, you have no chance to get to God. Now, this is still a problem. As religious leaders position themselves as someone you need in order to get to God. So you better agree with them. You better not upset them. You better not make them angry. I've said many times, religion is about power and control. And this is at the core of that power and control. Without us, you can't get to God. So you have no choice but to agree with them. So that's what's happening here. 
Verse 24, so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What they just said there is we know he's a sinner, so he didn't do this, so stop lying and tell the truth. Verse 25, he then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. This is a great response. He kind of stays out of the argument and says, I don't really know about that. This is just a poor beggar. He's not a theologian. This is what I know. I was blind. Now I see. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? Here's our question again. How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Now he's getting pretty sarcastic here. He's getting pretty frustrated, but they're asking the same question. And he tells him, I already told you and you won't listen. He's starting to figure out that these Pharisees are not going to listen no matter what. So he gets sarcastic. Why do I have to tell you again? Do you want to be Jesus' followers? Well, of course, they don't really like that. Verse 28, they revile him, which means they, they hurl insults at him. They, they tear him down. They put him down. Now think about that. These are the religious leaders. This is a blind beggar. This should be the greatest day of his life. He was blind. Now he sees there should be a party. Instead, he's getting interrogated. And because he won't agree with them, they're beating him up. They're putting him down. They're insulting him. They revile him and say, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. So they think maybe the blind man's a follower of Jesus, but they're followers of Moses. And we've seen this before. But Jesus has said to them, you don't even understand the law. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to them straight up, when Moses wrote, he wrote about me. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. But they don't get that. And basically they say, we're disciples of Moses. We don't even know where this Jesus comes from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing. What you do not know, that you do not know where he came from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could, not, uh, he could do nothing. So this is a great argument by uh, the beggar. He says, well, that's amazing to me that you don't know where Jesus is from, considering he's healed my eyes. I was blind, now I see. So he goes through the logic of his argument. First of all, we know if he was a sinner, God wouldn't hear him and he couldn't do these miracles. We know that if he is God-fearing and doing the will of God, God may empower him to do miracles. We also know that we've never known an occasion where anyone has ever come along and healed someone who is born blind. We've never seen this before. So if that's all true, it's fairly obvious he has to be from God. But of course, they don't like that. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins 
And are you teaching us? So they put him out. So basically, if you can't win the argument, then you attack the character. So they go back to, you obviously are a big sinner or you wouldn't have been born blind. So who do you think you are teaching us? So we are those that are the elite. We are those that are fit for office. Who are you to teach us? And they put him out. This was exactly the thing that his parents feared is they would be put out of the synagogue. This is no small thing. In their culture, this basically creates a barrier with no real chance to get to God. That's why I love verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. Jesus hears this and goes and finds him. It's like the good shepherd finding the lost sheep. And he says to him, do you believe in the son of man? So Jesus has used this title of himself again and again in the gospel of John. Do you believe in the one who is God in the flesh is is basically what he's saying. He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So this isn't a theologian. This is a beggar that uh, was blind and now he sees, but he so trusts Jesus. He just needs Jesus to tell him, who is it? And all believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. So you have seen him. And of course, that has, that has significant meaning He was blind, now he sees, so physically, literally, he's seeing him, but there's also a spiritual dimension. You you are seeing the truth. You're you're becoming uh, spiritually alive. You've seen him, and now you're hearing him. It's very similar to what Jesus says to the woman at the well, the one who's talking to you, I am he. So he identifies himself as the son of man, verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Very interesting, this is the only time in the Gospel of John where we are told anyone worshipped Jesus. So this is the great moment in the story. He clearly understands what Jesus is saying. This is John's word. He believed and he worshipped him. So just think about this. An hour or two before that, he was put out of the synagogue. The religious leaders put him out, seemingly with no chance to get to God. And in an hour Two hours, he is actually uh, with Jesus and is worshiping God. This is the whole story in a nutshell. The religious leaders cannot get you to God, but he came to Jesus and Jesus is God and he found God and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. So Jesus said his mission was not to come into the world to judge the world, but to seek and to save the lost. But he told us in John chapter 3 that when he comes as the light, the light does shine into the darkness and it exposes people's sin and that does create a judgment. So he's come in order that those who are blind, spiritually blind, would have their eyes opened and see. He's also come that those who think they can see the self-righteous, the religious crowd would realize actually they're blind in order that they might see. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? 
So there's some Pharisees hanging around, and basically the construction of the Greek there is they're expecting a negative answer. They're expecting Jesus to say, well, not all of you, or we think you probably aren't blind, but some of them are. So they're expecting something like that. They certainly aren't expecting what they get. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. What Jesus is saying is, I wish you were blind, because if you were blind, you would recognize your need for Jesus. And if you recognize your need for Jesus, you would have your sins forgiven. But because you think you can see, you have no need for a savior because you are self-righteous, because you think your own good works and religion can save you. You're actually still in your sins because you're so blind. Once again, A story ends and you have a a very similar pattern where you have, in this case, the blind beggar or the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well. Sinners who encounter Jesus, who realize their need for a savior and they experience forgiveness and new life in Jesus. But it's another story that ends with the self righteous religious leaders so determined not to believe that they once again walk away blind to who Jesus is. It's been said there are none so blind as those who will not see. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they are determined to believe that they are fit for office. And no matter how obvious it is, they're not going to change their minds. But along comes this blind beggar who once was blind, now he sees. He's not a theologian. He just knows I was blind, now I see. But they simply will not believe. My experience over the years, many years as a pastor, tells me this story is very accurate. That it's most often the people who are sinners, they're misfits, they're losers, they're messed up, they're addicted, they're struggling, they're despairing, they're hopeless, they're a mess. But they're the people that realize they're blind. And Jesus comes along and they realize they desperately need a savior. It's the only hope they have. And so they respond to Jesus And the blind are made to see. How many of us today would give testimony, I once was blind and now I see. We have encountered God in the flesh, the crucified and risen Savior of the world. But it's the people that are so morally good, the people that are so religious, the people are convinced that if God grades on the curve, certainly I'm getting in, that if anyone gets in, all get in. They have convinced themselves that they're good enough. They just don't need Jesus. Like the Pharisees, if your religion can make you right with God, you don't need a savior. These are often the most difficult people to reach. John Newton is the writer of the great old hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton has an amazing story. He was a slave trader, 
and actually did atrocious things to slaves over many, many years just to make money. But he had an encounter with Jesus and Jesus changed his life. He experienced the forgiveness of his sins and new life in Christ. So a remarkable story. And at the end of his story, he was pretty much blind and famously said, although my memory is fading, there are two things I remember clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That was the heart behind those amazing lyrics. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I pray that will be true for every one of us. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Brian Clark at Lincoln Berean Church. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.